Take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. We're going to talk today about a subject that makes people uncomfortable, which is always fun and exciting, right? And as we kind of walk through life, we're going to talk about a subject today that um, is like most subjects in life, that we how we view it depends on how we view the world. And as we walk through life, we develop a way to kind of think through the world around us. Now, um, philosophers and other people call this kind of system a worldview or a navigational lens to our universe. It's a philosophical, all-encompassing perspective on everything that exists and matters. It encapsulates our most fundamental beliefs and assumptions about the world we inhabit, and it answers life's big questions like, how did we get here, and who are we, and what happened to make things messed up, and is there life after this, and what's our purpose in life, and where are we headed as people, what makes something good, what makes something bad. It shapes and informs our experiences. So even as we have experiences, as we view experiences, as we see other people's experiences, our worldview shapes how we see it. It's almost as if we're wearing glasses and the lens we wear, whatever the lens is that we wear, that that lens shapes how we view the world. That's true even when it comes to what Christianity really is. And the idea is that we view Christianity primarily, most people have one of two different ways to kind of view what Christianity is. The first is what some people would call a works-based or moral model. And that is we see Christianity as a list of do's and don'ts of a moral vision for the world that God has given and that God desires people to live in a certain way and that his goal, his purpose, his mission is to turn bad people into good people. To take people that are bad by nature and turn them into good people. And the reality is, one of the things that I've noticed in my life, there are two primary groups of people that view Christianity that way. One is the people that have avoided church or maybe had an initial kind of, of, of being in church as they grew up and then walked away from the church because of a bad experience or just life happened. And they've been outside of the church and away from the church or they've never really been a part of church. They're complete outsiders to the church life. And they look at church and they look at Christianity and they think that it's a list of do's and don'ts that what we're trying to do is to be good people, that God makes bad people good according to what we believe. The other group of people that I find, which is interesting, that seem to fall in that pattern are people that have been in church for a long time. And it seems like the longer you go in church, the more things you have on your list of what makes somebody a good Christian or not. And you begin to analyze people, well, they... (laughs) They don't do this or they do that. Or you think about your own life and you start to think about, well, at least I don't or I never have or one day I hope not to. And the truth is, we know biblically that's not Christianity at all. Not that Christianity have a moral vision, not that Christianity doesn't have something we're trying to attain to, not that God isn't trying to give us a code of conduct that would be better for us. But we realize that it's not just an external change that is looking for from God. Now what happens is when you have that view, 
especially if you're in the church and you view Christianity that way, is that you begin to at to try to live that out. And at best, at the absolute best of what you can become in that model, is self-righteous. Well, at least I'm not like them. Or I did not do what they did. And you start to look down upon people. I can't believe they went to that place or they watched that movie or they listened to that music or they went and talked to that person. I would never find myself there. I can't believe they haven't been in. And you start to think about what people do or don't do and base their devotion on that. At worst, what happens when you view Christianity that way for yourself is you fail. But we live in a world where you can't admit that, so you just pretend. And you push down the things that are bothering you, and you never attain to that point where you think that's what it means to be a good Christian. i got to do this, and i got to do that, and I can't do this, and I can't do that. And before long, you fail, and even though you're pretending it, you've learned to say the things that they say at church, and to talk like people talk at church, and to be able to converse like people talk at church, and be able to say the things people at church talk about, that you know internally you have failed, and you have shame and guilt that stays within you. And even though you know the language, even though you know the culture, you find a place where you can use that and hide from what's really going on in your life. That's the moral view. The other view of that is, and I thought about this this morning as we were singing, is redeeming love, the redemption view. The redemption view says it doesn't matter that I can't attain to that because I never could anyways, and I have failed miserably in that, but I have a God who has come towards me. And that God has sent His Son for us who died on the cross to redeem us. And that what is happening is, yes, He is transforming me over time. But God's purpose was not to come make bad people good. God's purpose was to come make dead people alive. And as we become alive, He is in the process of transforming us. And the most important part of what Christianity is, is not the do's and the don'ts and the moral external behaviors. Christianity is not about behavioral change. It is about a lifestyle that has been transformed. It is about an inner transformation and a relationship with the God who loves us. And what happens is, out of that... Out of that, we begin to live in a way that we want to please the God who has already saved us. We do not live to gain the approval of God. We live because we already have his approval. And so the things that we do for God is because we have spent time with God. I'm afraid there are a lot of people in Christianity today, American Christianity in particular, that are doing a lot for God and they're not spending time with God. And the problem is, most of us, we like lists. We like to know what we have to do. We like to have our checklist of things, of how it's going to happen, of what exactly is going to take place. And man, have our list of what we can expect to happen been radically shifted over the last five months. Amen? When we think we got things figured out, it's not. I remembered back, I don't know, I was looking through something the other day, and I found where I'd written just a little note about some of the predictions that came out in March and April. Do y'all remember that when they were, everybody's talking about the predictions of hospitalizations and deaths? 
almost every one of their predictions had this virus gone by June 15th. And they were wrong on the front end about how bad it was. And we were like, whoo, look, they were wrong bad. But look, on we're, we're in August. Nobody knows what's going on. Y'all understand that, right? Right? We're trying our best and we, we would love, wouldn't it be great? I mean, I talked about school starting back this week and I've seen parents online and people having conversations. Well, well when are we going to be able to do this and when is that going to happen? And the answer is, we don't have a clue. There's no idea. And we like a life that gives us lists. And the same is true with Christianity. We wish, man, there was a list. And if I could check that list off, man, I would feel good about myself. I took my kids to register the other day because um, I took my girls to Madison Creek to register. And Susan's a teacher there. So a couple of things we had already kind of done beforehand. So nobody checked it off my list. And so I had a, I had a, a, they gave you when you walked in a checklist. And I had two boxes in the middle that weren't checked. And it bothered me the whole night. Anybody else here like that? It had already been done, but they didn't actually check them off. I mean, I saw it on my table the other day. I was like, let me just go over there and check those off just to feel, right? Like, we want our checklist. Say, why did you just spend ten minutes talking about all that? Because we have to understand that when the Sermon on the Mount is given by Jesus, it is given to people who lived in a checkbox religion mentality. They lived in the moral code. If we can just do these things, we'll be okay with God. And the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus ruthlessly goes after the heart of an action. Why are you doing it? What's the purpose? Are you more concerned about being with God, about your relationship with God, about being saved by God, than you are just getting the thing done? And so in chapter 6, he started by saying, don't do this in front of other people. And he talked about... Remember, he talked about don't do it in front of other people. Don't do about prayer. Don't do about fasting. And don't do about giving. And then he details prayer a little bit more. He fasting a little bit more. And then, starting in verse 19, he tackles money. I told you I was going to talk about something today that could be uncomfortable. And the truth is, anytime a preacher starts to talk about money, I can feel the squirms in the seats. Right. But the truth is that the Bible talks a lot about money. Just just listen to this. And I've used some of these statistics before. But listen, when you've been somewhere for 13 years, you've used all you got. All right. So you're coming back. You've trust in the Lord for new words. But listen to this. All right. In the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, there are about 500 verses on prayer. Well, we agree prayer is a pretty important thing. Yeah. Yes, we do. Would we agree that prayer is an Okay, some of you have been here a while, you're out of practice. Yes, all right. All right. So 500 verses about prayer. About the same number, a little over 500 verses about faith. Would we say faith is something important? Yeah, absolutely. In the Bible, on money, there are over 2,000 verses. In the New Testament, one out of every 10 verses in the New Testament Deal with finances or possessions or money. Jesus told 38 parables. Out of those 38 parables, 16 dealt with money or possessions. Jesus taught a lot. But when you look at it on a percentage basis, 
25% of what Jesus taught was about how we handle the possessions and financial resources we've been given. 25%. Can you imagine if I preached every month one message on giving, on money, on finances? Or imagine that every year I preach two six-week series on giving or money or finances. People would start to say, man, that, that preacher, he's just all about money. That's all he cares about is money. He, he's care, our offerings must not be doing well. He keeps talking about money. Now, here's the crazy thing. If I were to preach 25% of my messages about finances or money, I would be more in line with the percentages that Jesus used, and people would accuse me of being more out of line with what Jesus was teaching. And so obviously this is an important issue. But what we have to remember here is that Jesus, when he talks about in verses 19 through 24, we're about to read, when he talks about it, he is ruthlessly going after the heart of the action. And what we see in the New Testament, what we understand from the New Testament is this, is that money has a unique way to weave itself into our lives in a way that can either be toxic and destructive or freeing and life-giving. So let's read Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 19. Verse 19 says this, Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So he takes this passage and he begins to walk through how we relate to possessions. Again, don't take this apart from what he's talked about. He talked about not doing what we do in front of public so people can see this is an internal matter. This is something that's inside. This is about our relationship with God. That when we pray, we pray in a way that gives glory to God and looks to his kingdom and wants to advance his kingdom and wants to give glories to his name. When we fast, we're waiting on a word from the Lord to glorify his name and to advance his kingdom. And when it comes to our financial, that is not disconnected in any way from the purpose of our lives and from the purpose of our hearts to glorify God and to Extend his kingdom. One of the things that you notice right from the very beginning is I spent a whole lot of time talking about Christianity. It's not about do and don't. And Jesus starts this section by saying don't and do, right? But I want you to look at what he's really talking about. And one of the things that I want you to notice is he talks about moth and rust destroy and thieves breaking in. One of the things that he wants people to realize, and he does this in another parable, where he says, you fool, you say today we eat, drink, and be merry, and you've stored all of your stuff in in silos, and yet tomorrow you're gone. And what Jesus wants us to realize, whenever we come to the issue of money, whenever we come to the issue really of anything on this earth, is that we control far less than we ever imagined we control. That you and I have control over far less than we could ever imagine. Amen? I mean, has the last five months not taught us that? Right? 
I went out yesterday. We had a couple of things to do. We had a we had a couple of things that we've been cleaning out a little bit and go to Goodwill and then had to pick up something at Home Depot. And I went to Indian Lake and completely forgot it was tax free weekend the weekend before school. Right? Now, first of all, what I'll say is I also forgot that almost completely while I was in those stores because traffic wasn't crazy out there. Usually, if you go out to Indian Lake, it's an eight-hour problem to get in and out on that weekend. And so I went to drop off and then there, and then driving back, I ended up at the streets for a moment. I was going to pick up something real quickly, and that's where I realized, oh, there's something going on here. And there were people lined up outside, which is a weird thing to see at stores, right? It's something we've gotten used to a little bit. They weren't even at Bath and Body Works this time. Usually they're at Bath and Body Works. I guess people started smelling during the uh, pandemic, right? And so they're usually lined up there, but one around. And there was a huge line at one store that I did not expect. Justice. Any Justice fans here? Any non-Justice fans here? Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord? Unless you have preteen girls, justice isn't on your radar, all right? But justice had a line around, like, around the block. And I was like, what in the world's going on in justice? They must be having a big sale. It's tax-free weekend. So as I'm driving out of India, like, there's one of those sign spinners. You know those jobs they got? Store closing sale at justice. Yeah, some of you just made plans for after church. I know. Right. <laughs> Store closing. Just now, if you would have told, let me just think about think about this. If you would have told the people that run the store at Indian Lake Justice in December that they would be closing on tax free weekend, back to school shopping. Because their business had dropped off so much. They would have thought you were crazy. And yet, here we are. We are not in control as much as we think. And so as we begin to think about how we handle our money, there are three things that I want us to see today straight from this passage. And the first thing is this. How you handle your money will determine your ROI. Now, ROI, for those of you that may think, what is ROI? Most of you know, I'm sure, is return on investment. It's a buzzword when people give to something in the business world. What's my return on investment going to be? One of my favorite shows to watch uh, when I get a chance and sitting around just kind of flipping around, and if it's on, is Shark Tank. Anybody here watch Shark Tank? Shark Tank, you know, where they come and they present crazy ideas, sometimes good ideas. There was a station camp middle school student, it's probably a high school student now, that went on there and got his company bought because he figured out how to put measurements on shovels. And so you just measure as you shovel, and they all bought into it, bought his company from him, thousands of dollars, sold it to make it. But one of the questions that those sharks, the people that are going to invest in whatever product is brought in or whatever service is brought in, one of the things they always ask is, when am I going to get my money back and how much of my money am I going to get back? How much more than my money am I going to get back? What is my return on investment? And what Jesus reminds us of in this short little phrase with that do and that don't, you see the don't in there is to protect us. And what he tells us is, 
a simple reality is that whatever we acquire here on this earth, we will lose. And whatever we invest in eternity will be secure by the greatest insurance you could ever imagine, the personal will and power of God, and the return on investment is incalculable. This week I read about J.D. Rockefeller, who lived in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and is considered by most people to be, at the time he was living, he would have been the richest American who ever lived, that's for sure. But if you do it inflation-wise, he's the richest American that has ever lived and the richest in modern history. So just for instance, they calculated his net worth for today, all that, figuring out you know, inflation and all that, percentage of GDP and all that, his net worth today would be somewhere around $340 billion. Hey, that's a lot of money, all right? Uh, and to compare it to the richest, you might know who the richest person in the world today is? It's Jeff Bezos, Amazon, who has made billions in the last five months. In fact, there was a time last week where he made $8 billion in a day, okay, because his, his stock went up. Jeff Bezos is the richest person in the world and has more money right now than almost anybody has had in the last 30 years. And at his height a couple of weeks ago, Jeff Bezos was worth about $188 billion. So when you think about Rockefeller, $340 Bezos is the richest, and people can't imagine how wealthy he is, 188. Not quite, and it's a little less, but almost twice as much. When he died, somebody came up to his accountant. And you know, like people do who are nosy and busybodies. No, y'all don't know any of those, but said, so how much did he leave behind? And the accountant just looked at him straight-faced and said, all of it. All of it. And guess what? When Jeff Bezos goes on, how much is he going to leave? All of it. Whatever you make here stays here. Whatever you invest for eternity grows in eternity. And there's some simple realities behind that. The first is God owns everything already. Psalm 24, 1 says, The earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants, belong to the Lord. Haggai 2, 8 says, The silver and gold belongs to me, says the Lord. Deuteronomy 8, 18 reminds us that whatever you have, you have because the Lord lets you have the ability to make it. It says, But remember, the Lord your God gives you the power to gain wealth. What we have is not ours anyways. We are temporary managers of what God has given us. Now, the reason that's important is, is because sometimes people like to talk about what they have done, what they have made, about their money, about how they have saved, about their savings, their investments. And here's the reality. Yes, God gives us the ability to make those decisions and puts us in places where we can. But we are naive if we think that it is all just because of us. Like God is the one who owns it all. The 
cattle on a thousand hills. He owns everything. He gives us a portion to steward for a little while. You know what one of the amazing things about common grace? You know what common grace is? Common grace is grace given to the world, even to unbelievers. That God allows good things to happen, even to people that are enemies of his that don't follow. One of the things that's amazing is, is that he gives over his stuff to unbelievers, sometimes in more than he does to believers. But it's just for a time. And we have to remember that. We have to remember that this world is not our home. The scriptures call us pilgrims. Scripture calls us strangers. In 2 Corinthians 5.20 it says that we are ambassadors. That means that we have come from a foreign place to where we are to represent our foreign government. Well, what's our foreign government? Well, Philippians 3.20 says that we have citizenship in heaven. That our primary citizenship, our only one that matters is in God's family. I don't know if you've seen this, but there's lots of discussions. I don't know if they decided that the coronavirus and all that's happened in our country in the last two or three months and an election coming up is the best time to dump some information. But apparently they're about to dump about a, a lot of UFO and alien information on us. Have y'all seen that? I mean, there, there are people that say we're about to find out there's life elsewhere. Now, I don't know. But here's what I will tell you. You know what's interesting is that phrase, that word alien, is in Scripture and it describes us. And the reality is if you say, are there people from other worlds living currently on our planet? The answer is yes, we are. Because we are not of this world. Far too many of us settle down like this is our home. Imagine, if you will, if this weekend you went on a weekend getaway. Maybe some of you are watching and you are. Imagine, for those of us in this room, this is not what we consider a weekend getaway here. But we went on a weekend getaway to a nice hotel. Or, let's do something better. You went to an Airbnb and so you're staying at somebody's house. Now you're there for the weekend and you look around and you're like, man, I really don't like these, this flooring. This, this wall could be a different color. I don't like the arrangement of the furniture here. You're there for three days. Are you going to replace the flooring and paint the wall and do something about the furniture? No. Why? Because you're just there for a couple of days. You can live with it. We're just here for a couple of days. If you can imagine our lifespan, and this is hard to do because we live in the here and now, like a line where we're living today is like a dot. And eternity will be a line that goes on forever. And our problem is most of us spend too much time focusing on the dot and not the line. We care too much about the here and now instead of investing in what is to come. Randy Alcorn in his great book, The Treasure Principle, I highly recommend. It's a short, small little book, Treasure Principle, I highly recommend it. I'm indebted to him for lots of insights for this sermon. says, and I love this phrase, you can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead. Jesus says, I don't want you not to invest in the future. I don't want you to not to, to store up treasure. I just want you to put it somewhere it's going to last. Second thing from this passage, not only is how you handle money determine your ROI, but how you handle your money directs your passion. 
Look what he says right in the middle here, verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. I've told you this, that for much of my life, I misread that verse. And I misread that verse is, where your heart is, there your treasure will be. As if my treasure follows my passion. But what it tells me in verse 21 is exactly opposite of that. That where I spend my money, where I give my time, where I give effort, my heart will follow that. And so we talked about... Um, Amazon for a minute ago. If you bought shares in Amazon, you would suddenly care more about the business health of Amazon. Amen? Like if you had invested your life savings in Apple, you're, uh, you're, you're wondering about what's the manufacturing like right now? When are they going to get the next iPhone out? Not because you want it, but because you want your investment to increase. You suddenly care about it. And when you invest in something, you care about it. And here's what I also understand. The nicer the stuff you get, the more you care. Amen? I was thinking about uh, my first car, all right? You remember your first car? Somebody tell me what your first car was. A Ford Tempo. It's awesome, Bretta, all right? A 60, we don't want to talk to you, Mark. 66 Mustang, all right? That's like classic car. Like most of us didn't have that kind of good stuff, all right? What? A 47 Plymouth. That's fancy, all right? Mine was a 1982 Regal Limited. Woo! Two-tone. Champagne on brown. That's brown on brown. All right? Took a wheel. You could do this to the wheel, and the car would just bob on the front. You would like to see what I drove. Uh, There are lots of rap videos from the 90s that used my car, literally. (laughs) It's on there, right? That's what I drove. And I was very appreciative. My parents bought me the car. I was very appreciative for the car. Um, It had a headliner that would lay down on my head. Like on my head right there. It was, it was, it was a good, dependable car and I liked it a lot. In 1999, Susan and I had been married for a year. Susan had a good job. I was in school. She was teaching in Texas. I was assistant, uh, at a fine arts preschool, but we were driving from Texas to to West Tennessee a lot, back and forth, newlyweds, and needed a dependable car. And so I remember we bought our first new car in 1999, a Toyota Camry. That was a good car. I still remember sitting in First Tennessee Bank in Dyersburg, Tennessee, and writing out the check for that car from the bank. Put the money in our account, we wrote out the check, and just thinking about how many numbers were on that line. Can I tell you, we took better care of that Camry than I did my Regal Limited because of the amount I had invested in that car. And we knew, like when we looked at each other and we we're like, this car has to last us 10 years. This isn't a couple of year project here. This is a 10 year thing. And what happens is where we put our money causes our heart to go there. 
And so when you invest time in something, you suddenly care about it. When you invest money in something, you suddenly care about it. When you invest effort in something, you care about it. And what happens is, as we invest in those things, our heart follows. And so be careful where you put your time and energy and your money. Here's the last of the three things and then we're done. How you handle your money reveals your priorities. In general, we're terrible at setting priorities. There was a, a program on PBS, this has been several years ago now, called Affluenza. It is about how Americans have more than any society in history have had in a free kind of setting, able to use it and do that. And what they discovered is we're not good at how we use it. And they didn't talk just about money. They were talking about life in general. For instance, they said that the average American spent six hours a week shopping. Now, this is actually before online shopping took off. Six hours a week shopping and 40 minutes a week playing with their children. Over 90% of divorces... When asked about the reason for the divorce, the number one uh, or number two reason was financial pressure and mismanagement. And by age 20, Americans have seen one million commercials. Now you say, well, like my kids don't know what commercials on TVs are right now. But listen, they play games on their, on their iPad or they play games on our family, whatever they are, and they see ads all the time on there. And the problem is that America and those commercials are telling us what the good life is. It's comfort. It's self-indulgence. And what we know from Scripture is that life of filling our own lives, of getting what we want, of doing what we want, of having what we want, leads to a dead end. The book of Ecclesiastes, remember Solomon, the richest man in the world at the time, gets everything he can. He throws parties that have been unmatched in history. He buys everything he can. He throws all kinds of people come in. He tries it on, he tries it on drink. He tries it on women. He tries on all this clothing and luxury. And at the end of it, what does he say about it? He says, it's all what? Meaningless. Meaningless. Vanity. And what happens in our lives is, in kind of the corollary to what we said earlier about that where you give your money, your heart follows. What I also can tell you is from an objective point of view, I can look at how you spend your time. I could look at your uh, financial records and I could tell you what you really care about. Jesus says right here, the way he says it is, no one can serve two masters. You either love one and hate the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So what's the answer to all of this? The answer to all of this is that he has responded to us that the way that we live our lives, and this is throughout Scripture, to make sure that materials do not have a hold on us, to make sure that we're investing in the kingdom to come and not just stuff that will fade away here, is that we live our lives generously, giving away our time and our talent and our money for the benefit of others, for the glory of the name of God, and for the spread of His kingdom. We live generously. There's a verse that we use almost every November around here, at least for the last five or six years, and it comes out of 1 Timothy chapter 6. 
And we're going to close by reading this and then just talking about it for just a second. It says, instruct those who are rich in this present age not to be arrogant. And we talked about this every year, that when we hear that, most of us think, well, that's good because I'm not rich. And yet you are, if, with, with all the statistics that are out there, if you make $30,000 a year as a family, then you are among the top 1% of people in the world. And those another 99% would think of you as rich. Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on what? The uncertainty of wealth. But what should we do? Set our hope on God who richly provides. Do what is good, to be rich in good works and to be generous and willing to share. And doing that, it tells us in verse 19, will store up treasure as a good foundation for the coming age. And they can take hold of what really is the good life. We live generously. We give of our time and our talent for the sake of the name and the glory of God and for the extension of his kingdom. That is the driving motivation of our lives. And what Jesus is telling them in the Sermon on the Mount is don't let material things have such a grasp on your life that it becomes the thing that you base your life on. The security of the next 10 years or the savings account or the investments cannot rule your life and they will if you let them. You allow the Lord and his will to rule your life. You live generously. You give to the purposes and the causes that lift up the name of Jesus and extend his kingdom. And you do it without regret, but cheerfully. Let's pray together.